Uh, well, this uh, Sunday we're working through the Ninth Commandment, and uh, I want to start off by telling you a little story about my upbringing. Uh, some of my fondest memories growing up were going hiking in Colorado with my dad. And we had a number of family rules for hiking. Uh, we had things like stay on the trail, or make sure dad can always see where you are, or don't forget to put sunscreen on the ears, a very important one. And one of my dad's rules was always tell the truth. You might say, what does this mean? But what that meant was that you were very interested in the well-being of people that you came across, whether you knew them or not. And so uh, you could imagine somebody coming down the opposite way on a trail, and you're booking it from a, a lightning storm, and, and you see them coming up, you give them a little warning. You say, hey, here's what's going on up the trail. Or maybe you see someone and you're chatting with them and they say, we're going to go do something. And, and you notice they don't have all the right equipment for it. And you say, well, hey, by the way, you're going to probably need this equipment. And, and these were ways of actually being kind to them and, and caring for people, people that you didn't know. And I kind of picked up this mountain ethic, if you will, from my dad. And I have this memory of, of completing a climb with some buddies. And we were coming down this saddle. And we, you had to kind of go down steep snow. And then there's a cliff. And then there's a lot more steep snow. And this is actually a very dangerous part uh, because if, if you weren't careful, you could slip, then fall down the cliff and then keep falling. Uh, and so you kind of, you got down by sneaking around uh, this little ledge system on the side. And, and so we, we went down and we were down at the bottom. We saw this guy uh, up at the top and we're like, who is he? What is he doing? And he was wearing like shorts and tennis shoes. <laughs> we're like, what is he doing here? It'd be like, seeing somebody up on Mount Baker just down the road and saying, what are they doing on top in shorts and tennis shoes? And he was going down this saddle, and we thought, oh my gosh, he's in trouble. And I knew exactly what to do because of my dad. And so I started shouting at him and doing this and, and yelling and saying, hey, go back the other way, go back the other way. And he kind of pauses and he looks at us. He's like, what are, you, what are these people shouting at me for? This never happens. And he keeps walking down the, the, the slope. And then we're like, no, no, no. And so we keep shouting again. And, and this goes on for about 15 minutes until he finally gets the idea. And he ends up um, going back the other way. And he finds another way down. And we ended up running uh, into him down at the trailhead. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so awkward. I was really hoping I wouldn't see him. And the very first thing he says is, thank you so much. I didn't know what I was doing. Thank you for warning me. And the very interesting thing about this is that this mountain ethic that my dad had uh, was actually a way of living out the ninth commandment. Uh, that might sound strange. The ninth commandment is a command not to tell lies. And so you would say, what does it have to do with warning people when you're going hiking? Uh, it has to do a lot, actually. And so that's what we're going to ex be exploring this morning. We're going to be digging into the ninth commandment uh, and seeing that it's broader and richer than we have typically thought before I read the text, I want to note something that Nate has mentioned through all the sermons in this tenth, uh, these Ten Commandments, and that is that there is the commandment itself, uh, do not do this or, or, or so on, and then there's all these case laws that get attached to it. Uh, and these case laws, uh, while sometimes tedious, are very important because they, they bring a lot of clarity to what that commandment looks like in our lives. They, they kind of set up moral precedents that we can use to follow. So... If you have a bulletin with you, uh, we're on page 10. We're going to read uh, both the commandment and the case laws, and then we're going to explore what they have to say. This is Exodus 20, 16, page 10. You, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the case laws, Exodus 23, 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report 
You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you bring it back to him. If you see the donkey, the one who hates you, uh, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue him, it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall not take a bribe, for the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, uh, knowing that it encourages us and challenges us and cuts and heals and binds and divides. And so we pray that it would be active in our hearts this morning by your spirit. Lord, would you meet us in our need, we pray. Amen. So if you're joining us this morning for the first time, uh, we are in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments. We're uh, working through Exodus, and we're nearing the end. And there is a little assumption that I think a lot of us have about the Ten Commandments, uh, that they are written in an order of importance. And so the first one would probably be the most important, and the second one sort of important, and then by the time you get down to nine and ten, it's really kind of take it or leave it. It's, it's your option. And... Uh, the, the important thing is that each of the commandments are actually connected to each other. And so as you emboy, obey one of them, it actually enables you to obey, obey the others. And if you uh, break one of the commandments, it means you're more likely to break others. So here's an example. If you were to go steal something, you've got to hide it up, hide, uh, hide, hide that fact, and you're probably going to have to lie about it later on. Or if you covet someone who you're not married to, you might be tempted to be unfaithful to your own spouse. Each of the commandments is connected to the other, making the ninth commandment just as important as each other. It's for this reason that we're going to uh, pick as our topic this morning the ninth commandment itself, and we're going to ask two questions about it. Uh, what does this law say? What does it look like for us to actually live out this law? And then what is the, what does, where does the law come from? What is its source and origin? So we'll work through it in that order. What does the law say? And the first thing we see is that the law means promoting the good name of each other. This is something you see expressed in the many different confessions that unpack the Ten Commandments. They all talk about curating the reputation of each other. This is something you see illustrated all throughout the New Testament, uh, epistles especially, as they work hard to spread good reports about people in churches. Promoting the good name of each other means stewarding the reputation of each other. Our reputations are immensely valuable. It means people can trust us. It means we feel like we have a place in our community. And Christian community is marked by the active promotion of each other's good names and reputations. And what God wants for us is to be a community where we can trust each other and the things we say about each other behind our backs. This means we're quick to speak well about each other. We don't hold back at all. It means we name the accomplishments of each other. It means uh, when scripture talks about rejoicing with other people's rejoicing, uh, that means celebrating their successes, talking about it behind other people. This is what it means to promote the good name of each other. It also means overlooking each other's faults. 
It means love covers a multitude of sins. Christian community isn't a place where we exhaust our mental resources calculating and remembering the faults of each other. It means something quite different. It means that other people hold our faults well. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, puts it in his book, Life Together. Uh, By the way, this chapter heading is called, uh, excuse me, uh, The Ministry of Holding One's Tongue. (laughs) Very interesting. This is what he says. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. To speak well about a brother covertly is forbidden, even under the cloak of help and goodwill. For it is precisely in disguise that the spirit of hatred among brothers always creeps in when it is seeking to create mischief. There is, at the beginning of every Christian fellowship, an engendered, invisible life and death contest that echoes these words. There arose among them a great reasoning. Which of them would be the greatest? I love Bonhoeffer. He's like Paul. He's very passionate and absolutist in how he communicates. Uh, But uh, he's speaking to us. uh, 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 He's helping us characterize what a grace-centered community would actually look like. We talk a little about this. And for us, to be a grace-centered community means promoting the good name of each other. The ninth commandment is asking us to envision a community where reputations can be safe in the hands of each other. I've been here for a while, about a year, and I've spent a few summers here. And uh, I would say I think we're doing a great job at this, by and large. I, I think, you know, I, I've never been here uh, and heard anybody just really give it to somebody, you know. And, and, and so I, I think there's never been anything like that. In fact, I'm always hearing people talking well about people. Uh, so kudos to you guys and kudos to us. And, uh, but I, I think that one area where we might struggle with, and, and at least I know I do, is that we can sometimes make other people's embarrassments the topics of our casual conversation. Uh, this, the most painful part of this, is the fact that it means our lives are now under the microscope of an entire community. Uh, something that would just be typically known by one or two or three people is now known by dozens or even hundreds of people. What God wants for us is to be a place where uh, we don't have to fight for our reputation, other people will be fighting for it. A question that might naturally come up from this is what do we do with our actual faults then? Uh, and especially what do we do with, with people who seriously violate the trust of a community? And this leads to our second point of what it means to live out this law, that the second commandment is also promoting justice. Uh, the commandment itself, the language, talks about bearing a false witness, and this is a technical idea of, of perjury, uh, not to tell a lie, not to tell a falsehood while under oath uh, And one of the biggest burdens behind this is a desire for justice. The problem with perjury is that it undermines justice. And there are a couple of classes of people that this passage is especially interested in that we should be desirous to see justice curated in these groups. The first is justice for the poor. Our passage has a special emphasis on justice for the poor. You look at verse 6. It says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Uh, The poor are people who are most easily taken advantage of. This is an old day, this is an old problem that has many uh, modern expressions. It's a very well-documented fact that wealth is one of the uh, many essential indicators of the outcome someone will experience in court. In the city of St. Louis, where I most recently lived, 
uh, all things considered, my, uh, poor minorities are more likely to receive uh, violations for minor offenses than majority culture is. Many of these people are too poor to pay for the bail, and they lose jobs uh, and suffer other things. Uh, there have been a number of studies that show that people who spend an extended time in pretrial detention are more likely to receive longer sentences uh, and uh, experience recidivism. It's the case that in many of these poor communities, public defenders are oftentimes also overworked and underpaid. And what the Ninth Commandment asks for us is that these type of things should actually bother us. Uh, we should take a special interest in the suffering of people who experience these things. And what this means is that it's a very legitimate calling for a young person to grow up and say, uh, I want to enter law to promote justice for the poor. This also speaks to how we spend our money and how we offer our vote. This is not something, uh, as I love the language Nate used recently in a sermon, uh, the Bible explodes our pet virtues. And, and so this is uh, not something that is just the, the interest of uh, liberal-minded people or, or activist-kind-of-minded people. This is people who take God's word seriously. Another challenging thing that this passage has for us is that uh, we're not only promoting justice for the poor, but somewhat unexpectedly, we're promoting justice for our enemies. That's kind of a, maybe a strange thing. We typically think about justice being brought to bear on our enemies rather than uh, promoting justice. Uh, but what it's being described here is that there needs to be an impartiality that we have uh, 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 with our enemies, that uh, an injustice on them uh, is just an injustice. What Scripture is saying is two wrongs don't make a right. Verse 4 says this, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. This is a, a scenario easy to imagine ourselves in. Your neighbor who, who's kind of a bad guy, uh, you find his ox uh, wandering down a road. Uh, what our pastor is saying is you've got to go take it back to him. That, that, uh, his well-being, his welfare is part of your interests. What we need to do is ask ourselves, if this person weren't my enemy, how would I treat them? Kind of a helpful question. It's also worth mentioning, though, that uh, many of us uh, experience bullies. Uh, we experience uh, people who do terrible things. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we allow that to happen, because that would also be an injustice. We're supposed to be champions of justice uh, when it's easy and when it's hard. A question that at least I asked when reading this passage was, uh, you know, are we supposed to lie? Uh, never. Are we never supposed to lie? And um, we could kind of imagine ourselves in a freshman ethics class, and you know you have those crazy thought experiments, and they say, you know, the the the, the cart's rolling down and into a crowd of people. Do you throw a person in front of it to save the people? And and we could kind of imagine what do you do uh, when, uh, say, a bad guy, the you know Jason with his mask and his machete, comes to your door and says, "Is your family home?" You know, do you say? No, they're not home. You can go to my annoying neighbor's house, though. You can check on him. Um, and so, you know, we have to ask the question, what is a lie? And are we always not supposed to lie? Uh, and when we're thinking about this, we can start by asking, is a lie simply just saying something untrue? Uh, you know, is it uh, saying something that's false uh, while be believing that it's, it's true? Uh, or, excuse me, just saying something untrue? And I don't think so, because we do this all the time. Uh, somebody asks you, what time is it? You say 3.30, it's really 3.40. That's not a lie. And so maybe we add on, on to that, 
uh, something kind of deliberate. So it's saying an untruth that's also intentional. But the problem is we can think of things like board games, right, that have some type of bluffing or lying involved in it. And we typically uh, think that we're not actually committing something uh, immoral or, or sinful uh, by participating uh, in those kind of deceptions. More importantly, uh, scripture gives us a number of counterexamples that are helpful. You think of the midwives saving Moses in the reeds, uh, finding him, and or Rahab hiding the Israelite spies. These people are doing things uh, that seem to be uh, considered lies, and yet at the same time, they're being condoned by scripture. I think these examples and others give us a clue to what, uh, how we might kind of work our way out of this, and that is that a lie is something that actually harms other people. And that these exceptions are allowed when there is a grave injustice about to happen and we can check it. Uh, these exceptions are prevent moral catastrophes and they're a check on bad moral actors uh, by telling the truth. This maybe doesn't sit well with us or maybe makes us think, uh, feel uncomfortable uh, thinking about things like Rahab and, and the midwives. Uh, uh, and so this forces us to ask the second question, where does this law come from? Uh, not only what, what does this law look like as it lived out in our lives, but where does it come from? And what's true about this law, and is also what's true about all laws, uh, is that they reflect the character of the lawgiver. Uh, if you want to know the lawgiver, you have to look at their laws. This is something that we all intuitively know. You think of a parent who has rules like chew with your mouth closed, or say please and thank you, uh, these are reflecting the values of the parents, things like courtesy and manners. Or you look at our, our ballot coming up, and there's a several interesting initiatives. Think of something like 1631, which has a carbon tax. Um, uh, this is reflecting uh, somebody's uh, value system that involves environmental uh, stewardship. And the same thing with us and the Lord, that his law is a window into his heart. And that by leaning into the laws, we're not only living, uh, but we're also uh, learning about the lawgiver. So for example, honor your father and mother means that God values authority. Uh, do not commit adultery means God values fidelity. Uh, each of the laws guides us into our calling of being image bearers who reflect God's character and know the heart of our maker. People are called to be law keepers, and by doing this, we know the lawgiver. So what does the ninth commandment tell us about God? Uh, the first thing may sound um, uh, maybe obvious, but it's the fact that God never lies. Uh, God can always be trusted to tell the truth. One place you see this uh, expressed is in Titus 1-2, which says this, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul is tying together uh, both the fact that God tells the truth and he keeps his promises. His truth-telling, in some way, is the basis for his promissory relationship he has with us. Uh, and this is a very important thing when, to understand when we, we try to uh, think about what it means to have a relationship with God. Uh, we talk a lot about having a relationship with God, and we, we do. And, uh, but the problem is I have a relationship with my dog also. You know? And you're going to have a relationship with your cat. And so what's unique about a relationship with God? Uh, and... It's the fact that we have a relationship with him that's grounded in promises. Uh, promises are where someone is committing themselves to you regardless of uh, how you're performing or their circumstances. 
A relationship that's most similar to this is a marriage. The basis for a marriage is the vows and promises you take with each other. It's not grounded in how you feel on a particular day or the fact that the person was attractive when you married them or, or the fact that they haven't hurt you at all or anything like this. A marriage is founded on the promises that you make to each other. And when things change, you always keep your promises. One of the things that scripture uh, you'll see expressed uh, all over the t- place is that God will come to Israel at a church or something and he'll say, uh, you know, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to rescue you from foreign enemies. Uh, And I'm not going to do this because of something you've done. I'm going to actually do this because of promises I've made to you. So what this means for us is that God's promises to us of his forgiveness, his adoption, his acceptance of us is always true of us regardless of, of how we're treating the Lord. This raises a problem, though. How can uh, God be in a relationship with people who regularly offend him? Right? That's kind of a difficult relationship to have with somebody who is always uh, breaking their end of the deal. And that leads to our last point, that God speaks to us about our good name. The answer is that God promotes our good name. He works to curate our reputation, our standing with himself. He is the one who answers this problem of how a good God can be in relationship with people who regularly fail him. This is commonly called the doctrine of justification. And the image used here is that of a a courtroom, something familiar in our passage. Except it's a little bit different. Rather than uh, justice being brought to bear on somebody else, we ourselves who are the perpetrators of injustice. God has charged us with being his enemies, presuming on his generosity, ignoring his law, and there are no excuses and we're to blame. And we're sitting there, we're waiting for the verdict to be read, and then something quite strange happens. God says to us, you are perfect to me. What? (laughs) And he goes on, he says, you are everything I dreamed of. Somehow in this situation, our deepest longings to, to have somebody say this to us are being met. He goes on to say, you have always cared for the poor and the vulnerable. When you were attacked, you turned the other cheek. You always did my will ahead of your own. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting this at all. But then it begins to get interesting. He says to us, I loved especially when you cared for the woman at the well. I love that you pitied the leper and you healed him. We say to ourselves, I didn't do that. And then we realize what's happening is that God is describing Jesus' reputation. And what's happened is that Jesus has taken his good name and he's covered our bad name. And the good name that we couldn't achieve is something that we actually receive. This is really the starting point of it all. We can't learn to speak well of people until you first learn how God speaks of you. And you can't care for your enemy's goods until you first see how God cares for you. The economy of God's world is that you learn to give first by receiving. We started out by asking what the law meant. And we discovered that there was much more than you would expect. It means promoting the good name and reputation of each other. And then bringing justice to bear on people who are uh, uh, easily overlooked or ignored. 
And this law has its origins in God himself, who grounds his relationships with us in his promises and overlooks our faults by giving us his good name. Would we be a people who find beauty in this truth and the burden to carry it out? Let's pray. Lord, uh, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to your path. Lord, we love you for your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.